0: Hi, welcome to the Loki podcast, a podcast in which I talk about Loki. I'm Annie, still, and a fun fact about me is that today is actually my birthday. Not when you're hearing this, probably, but when I'm recording this, I'm currently turning 23. I actually casually mentioned this to someone today and they were like, wow, in 10 years, you'll be the same age as Jesus was when he died. And I'm not entirely sure if I meant to take that as a aspiration or something to avoid, But I just said, thanks, I guess you're right. But aside from the Jesus thing, another quick note, I'm sure some of you noticed that there was a brief interlude in episodes, which I'm very sorry for, wasn't very professional on my part, but my life is somewhat more together than it was. So hopefully no more of that nonsense. And we're starting up again with an episode I've actually been really excited to make, which is my first foray into the mythological side of Loki. As I've definitely mentioned before, Norse mythology and Norse mythological literature is my academic background. It's what I'm currently working on as part of the final year of my degree. So making this episode is probably going to put a lot of that learning to the test, and in a very different way from the way I'm working with it at the moment, as in I have to go back to basics and be able to explain that and understand that in a way that is accessible to people who haven't been studying it for the last however many years I've been doing this. I'm sure there's gonna be a huge range of knowledge among the people who listen to this episode, or at least I hope, which is why this episode is possibly going to be a little bit different from the first two. Instead of going into in-depth analysis on something, we're just gonna be touching on the basics and essentially explaining what Norse mythology is. And I think it's really important to do that because everything we've covered so far, both the first Thor movie and Loki, Agent of Asgard, has come out in the last 10 years. Because of that, I think we kind of have a fundamental understanding of what they are. We all know what a movie is. I don't have to explain what a movie is to you. You've probably seen at least one, probably more than that. Even comics, if you've never read a comic in your life, you probably understand on a basic level what a comic book is. By comparison, when we're talking about Norse mythology, we're talking about things that are at least centuries old, possibly even millennia. Which means we just don't have the same level of cultural intuition. We don't automatically n- know what we're talking about. It's a social context that is so far removed from our own that we don't inherently understand it already. Add to that the fact that there are so many misconceptions floating around about this kind of time period, I think it is necessary to stop and cover the basics before we get into any more depth on anything to do with Norse mythology. But. Before getting into all that wonderful depth, I have some other wonderful nonsense to throw your way. The news. There is no news. There is never any news. The news is that I still love him. I really need to think of something to do with this segment when there is no news, which is pretty much all the time. But moving on to your letters, your emails, your DMs, everything you've all been kind enough to send me up until this point. A quick note. The amount of mail I'm getting from you guys is actually insane, both in terms of the fact that I can't believe so many of you have things to say to me. Thank you. And second of all, emails terrify me, so it takes me a while to get to them. I am really trying. And while I might not get to every email and every message on the podcast, I will get round to replying to all of you at some point. But on to your mail. My first email that I'm going to talk about was from Holly, who sent me a really, really lovely long letter about all of the reasons she loves Loki, which I think is so nice, thank you. But she also posed me a similar question. What are the things that Loki appears in that really make me love him? And I had to think about this question for a long time, which is why I'm going to talk about it. To be clear, this is all very subject to change, and if you ask me next week, I would probably give you an entirely different answer. But as of right now, the first thing I'm going to mention is the Avengers Free Comic Book Day issue of 2018. Loki only really appears on three pages of this comic, but the first thing I love about it is the way Sarah Pacelli draws Loki. It is just incredible. He looks absolutely insane. He's also wearing black lipstick, which I love. There's a whole gender ambiguity thing going on here, which is a lot of the reason why I really love Loki as a character. And the writing itself is also spectacular. The key point here is a confrontation between Loki and Odin. And Odin literally says that as much as he hates Loki and is tormented by the fact that Loki still lives, he doesn't have it in himself to kill Loki. Which is a very dark take on their relationship, but I'm so into that kind of stuff. Loki is also 100% the villain here and as much as I like much more light-hearted versions of Loki, like we see in Agent of Asgard, I just really like it when he's being kind of evil. I know I'm very much just talking about the vibes here, but it's a free comic book day comic. There's not a lot of content, but the vibes! There is just nothing else like this and I'm obsessed. Number two, I've gone for the poem Locker Center, which is... A mythological text, and I'll be explaining more about it in this episode, but I just want to say it is one of my favourite things because it's kind of a medieval dark comedy. It's really funny, Loki's insults to the rest of the Aesir are just hilarious. But there's also a lot of darkness here and it has very real consequences, and there's references to the apocalypse and Loki's own impending doom, and that's just the kind of thing that I love. And for my final thing, I'm going back into comic book territory, and it's War of the Realms issue one, which, if you've read it, you know that Loki gets swallowed whole by his father. And it's basically a joke with my friends now about how into this I am, and I promise it's not weird. I promise. I just think it's a very powerful metaphor, and it's a metaphor that we've seen in Loki's story before. Back in the Kieran Gillan run of Journey into Mystery, the kid Loki actually eats a magpie that is his old self and and is entirely destroyed in the process. I'm not entirely sure what it is about this that just really gets to me. I just think it's very effective. So those are my top three Loki moments at the moment. Thank you for the email, Holly. My second message comes from Jay, who asked me two questions. First of all, how do you get into reading Norse mythology? And as obvious as this answer sounds, you just need to read Norse mythology. You can go and get the books, or you can find it online, and just read the relevant texts. In the course of this episode, I'm going to mention a few of the editions, a few of the translations that I use and I like. So basically, listen to this episode, and then go read the text for yourself, is my advice. At the same time, there's probably going to be a lot of stuff that you don't understand immediately, and don't get scared by that. Reading the introduction to whichever translation you've chosen will give you a lot of the background knowledge you'll need to understand what's going on. Also, don't be afraid to use the explanatory notes that are in the back of most translations. They'll cover a lot of the basics and help you make sense of things as you're going along. Also, you can just use Google. If there's something you don't understand, type it into Google. There'll probably be some explanation of what it means. Especially if we're talking about the name of a certain god or place or concept or item or anything like that This is a very much jump in at the deep end approach But I do actually think it's the best and I'm very happy to answer more questions if they come up while you're doing the reading Jay's second question was Are you on stan Twitter? Which I guess the answer to that is yeah, probably unfortunately, I'm not gonna tell you what it is, but if you find it, which isn't that hard, Feel free to say hi, I don't mind. And finally, I have a question from Leliana, and she asks, oh, I can't say that. Hang on. Okay, so, uh, bonk, marry, kill. Loki, Lorelei, and Sigurd, from Adrian of Asgard. The thing with these questions is I always get way too philosophical. Like, does marry not imply bonking as well? Like, what is marriage but bonking till death do us part, but also with tax breaks. But anyway, I'm probably gonna go with the obvious answer here and say, I'm gonna marry Loki, I'm gonna bonk Lorelei, and I'm gonna kill Sigurd. Thanks for the question. And so with all that out the way, let's get on to talking about Norse mythology. The basic structure I'm going with here is that I'm gonna start by talking about what Norse mythology is before getting into what it has to say about Loki. Just a quick note on pronunciation. I'll mostly be using the accepted pronunciation of the various names of gods and places and things like that, at least what we think it might have been in the original language. But when it's not immediately obvious what the corresponding English pronunciation is, I'll point it out so hopefully no one will get lost. Also, these are only approximations of the accepted pronunciation because I still struggle with the correct pronunciation of Old Norse. It's at least for English speakers, quite a difficult language to say out loud. But moving swiftly onwards, as a basic definition, we're talking about the myths concerning the gods that are related to the paganism practiced in Northern Europe by the people living there during the medieval period and before. And I've tried to be really careful with the words I'm choosing here. All the same, I'm sure there's plenty of people who would argue with me, but I feel like those are some useful parameters to have just as a starting point. But let's get a little bit more into what all of that means. So to begin with, what's a myth mythology is a concept kind of carried over from classics so the study of everything greek and roman it's not that the concept is not applicable here it's more that we have to be careful in applying it because it's not exactly the same thing it's best to think of a myth as a story that's kind of passed around between people it has this sort of folk background in that most people within a culture will know about it will have some understanding of it And myths are often hugely variable, as in, you'll get multiple different versions of it based on different areas geographically or even different family units. There is no one set version of a myth, usually. People are somewhat free to take this common source of information and ideas and tell the stories the way they want to. To some extent, myths are often orally transmitted, which means they're spoken rather than written, though they are also written down sometimes, which is largely how we know about them in the first place. Mythology in general is actually a much more complex idea than you would originally think. One good thing to keep in mind is that our modern idea of canon isn't particularly useful when we're talking about mythology. Another key thing about mythology is that it usually deals with stories about gods and god-like creatures, god-adjacent creatures, and other things that fall vaguely into the same category. Which leads nicely onto my next point, gods and paganism and religion. It's important to note that Mythology is not religion in itself, but it is often linked to some kind of religion, namely pagan religion. And pagan is yes another word that can mean a whole bunch of different things in a whole bunch of different contexts, but in this case we're talking about pre-Christian religion that is, broadly speaking, polytheistic, aka there are multiple gods. And I'm not even going to touch on what that religion might have looked like today, purely because I don't really know. You kind of have to look at archaeology and stuff other than written sources, which means I'm very much out of my depth. But it does mean that mythology is not strictly fiction. There was, at some point, some level of belief connected to these stories. And even after the conversion to Christianity, they have a kind of cultural significance that goes beyond just fiction. And if all that is way too theoretical, that's entirely understandable. I barely even know what I'm talking about. Just don't worry about it, doesn't matter that much. Let's talk about time and place. So these are stories originating from northern Europe. So that's Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway and Sweden, and also Iceland, to some extent the Faroe Islands, Greenland a little bit, that kind of area, right up at the top of Europe on a map. Hence the name Norse Pathology. Nowadays our first thought when we think of that kind of area of the world are probably things like Ikea and blonde people and socialism, but if we're talking historically, a lot of people would probably think of the Vikings, which brings us onto the when. And the Vikings aren't entirely irrelevant to this, though it only covers a very small part of the time frame we're talking about. The Viking Age is traditionally thought to have started, well, the date is given as 793, which is the first recorded Viking raid in England. And it ended sometime in the early 11th century, so that's just after the year 1000 AD. But something that we could probably call Norse mythology existed for a long time before that and changed for a long time before that and it was still relevant for quite a long time after the Viking Age ended. And by the Viking Age we mean roughly the period of time in which raiders from the Scandinavian area were going out into the world and basically taking other people's stuff. As well as other things like killing them and taking slaves and all kinds of awful stuff like that but there was a lot more going on than just the violence. There was also a lot of peaceful contact with people outside of Scandinavia. And this is once again, a really complicated story and I'm not claiming to be a historian, but there's two main major changes that are very much interlinked and are important to this current story that I am telling you. Firstly, the Scandinavian countries as well as Iceland all converted to Christianity, which on a practical level means the king, or at least the powerful figures in the country, converted to Christianity. It also means churches popped up, church infrastructure popped up, and it became pretty much unacceptable to publicly practice pagan religion, which may sound like a bad thing in terms of Norse mythology and its preservation, but Christianization brought with it literacy and the technology to make books which probably sounds like a very simple thing. But our pagan Scandinavians just simply couldn't do that before this point. Yeah, they had things like runestones, but both the runic alphabet and the stones it was written on weren't very good for writing anything lengthy. They were good for memorials and saying, hey, I built this bridge. But beyond that, they couldn't really write anything in depth. And the point in history that really interests us, if we're interested in Norse mythology, is the 13th century in Iceland, which is when people really started writing things down. While there are written sources from before this period and from different places, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening at this time in this place. A lot of the sagas we now have originate in this century, and sagas are a kind of writing that is quite unique to Iceland in both style and also the fact that they're prose. At this time, poetry was a much more popular medium, especially when we're talking about lengthy narratives. And these sagas covered a lot of different topics, from the history of various Scandinavian kings, semi-legendary stories from the Viking Age, and some that are even legendary, verging on mythological but when we're talking about mythology, our main guy is a man called Snorri Sturluson. And we do actually know quite a lot about him. He was born in 1179 into an aristocratic family. His family held a lot of power in Iceland at the time. And Snorri himself was quite a powerful man. He held the position of law speaker twice, which while not being a position of direct power, it certainly was a position of prestige and prominence. He also personally knew the King of Norway at the time, he visited him at least twice, and he even wrote a poem for him, which we'll come back to you later. He also wrote a lot. He wrote a few of the sagas that we mentioned previously. He wrote a whole work known as Heimskringla, which is an extended history of the kings of Norway. Some people also say he wrote Eilt Saga, which is a very famous saga about a poet called Eilt, but that's only a theory and not exactly one I agree with. But most importantly, at least in the context of a podcast about Loki, he wrote something called the Edda. And this is where we move out of what Norse mythology theoretically is and start talking about the stories themselves, where they come from and what they actually say. While the Norse myths did exist probably for a very long time in the oral tradition, that's more or less invisible to us today. We just can't know what people were saying to each other centuries ago, but we do have Snorri's Edda, and if you've ever read up on Norse mythology before, you've probably come across this possibly under a different name. It's been variously called Snorri's Edda or Snorra Edda in Old Norse. It's also been called the Younger Edda. The most popular name is probably the Prose Edda, which is the name it's usually published under. All of these names are pretty much modern inventions, coined to differentiate between this text and another text known as the Poetic Edda or the Elder Edda, which I will get onto discussing in just a minute. But it's important to take all of these names with a pinch of salt. Snorri's Edda actually has a lot of poetry in it. It's probably older than the elder Edda, and some people even doubt whether it was composed by Snorri entirely. In all of the four manuscripts it appears in, it's only ever given a title once, and that title is Edda. And as a side note, this is a time way before the printing press, and so every manuscript was written by hand on vellum, which is essentially paper made from animal skin. Which means we're actually lucky to have four versions of it in the first place. Another key point is that people felt a lot less strongly about all versions of the text being exactly the same. So there's a lot of variation between the four main texts. People over the centuries edited stuff, added stuff they thought was relevant. Today I'll be using a modern edition of the text. It's Anthony Fawkes' version of the Edda, which if you feel like reading yourself, you can actually get a free PDF of it off the website for the Viking Society for Northern Research. And if you feel like buying a book, the Penguin Classics' Jesse Biok translation has a lot more explanatory notes, which might be easier to get into. But anyway, Snorri wrote his Edda and it's ostensibly all about how to write Old Norse poetry. And I say ostensibly because there's a lot of disagreement about what he was actually trying to do with this text. But luckily for us, Old Norse poetry really likes to call things other things. First of all, you have Haiti, which is essentially calling something by a different name, usually a much more obscure name. And then you have kennings, which is basically the same thing, but more complicated. They're usually made up of two words and take the format of something of something. For example, you have a leak of blood, which means a sword, or the tears of Freya, which means gold. And what you'll notice about that last one is that it references Norse mythology. And so in order to read and write this poetry, you actually have to have a fairly good understanding of Norse mythology, which is at least why Snorri tells us he writes it down. And so this isn't a genuine expression of belief. In all probability, Snorri was a Christian. He didn't work for the church like a lot of the men in his family did, But he makes it very clear in the Edda itself that we are not meant to believe these stories, even if they are worth recording. The prologue of the Edda actually opens by telling us about Adam and Eve and Noah's Ark and how humanity forgot all about God. He then goes on to talk about the Trojan War and Troy, stories familiar to us from the Iliad. But to be very clear, he had not read the Iliad and clearly does not know the stories very well. None of this is really recorded in the Iliad or anywhere else that we know of. But Snorri tells us that King Priam, who does actually appear in the Iliad, had a son called Thor, who is not our Thor, but he then traces the lineage down to a guy called Odin. Eventually, this Odin makes his way to Scandinavia, founding a bunch of dynasties on the way, and finally settling down as king of Norway. And Snorri actually gives us two fun little details. First of all, he says Aesir, the name of the gods, actually means men of Asia, aka those that came from Troy. He also says that, and I quote, "'Whatever countries they passed through, "'great glory was spoken of them, "'so that they seemed more like gods than men.'" This is a process known as euhemerization, where Christians basically say, "'Hey, these gods were not actually gods. "'They were just people who were really good and pretty, "'and so people thought they were gods.'" Which is the framework Snorri sets up before getting into Gilverginning, which is the second part of the Edda. Gülverginning actually means the tricking or deception of Gülvi, who is a semi-historical Swedish king. We are told that this Gülvi comes across a woman called Gefion, who has some magical oxen, and is thus inspired to go and find the Isier and see exactly what they're capable of. So he goes off, finds this splendid hall all covered in gold and stuff, and he meets this guy who is for some reason juggling seven knives. Some people have suggested he's there because Snorri is, like, a justophobe or something, but I don't know, I just think he's neat. But anyway, Gulvi enters the hall and tells everyone his name is Gangleri, and then he says he's come to find out if there is anyone intelligent in this hall. Which does sound kind of rude, but these kind of wisdom contests are actually well attested in Old Norse literature. It usually involves both participants asking a series of questions which their opponent must answer. Often this is done under an assumed name, Odin or Odin actually partakes in a number of these contests and only revealing his identity when he's already won. Another important feature of these wisdom contests is that the loser pretty much invariably dies horribly. So, you know, these things aren't exactly just for fun. But back to Gilvi. This request is answered by a man labelled as High, which, just to note, is another name for Odin. And High is accompanied by two other people known as Equally High and Third. And so Gilvie begins to ask his questions, which lead to High, Equally High and Third, telling him all about the main figures of Norse mythology and the myths they appear in. And would you look at that? About 15 minutes in, we finally get to some actual Norse mythology. And this is where we get a lot of the famous stories, the stories that you might already be familiar with. High describes to Gilvi how Oven and his brothers built the world out of the mutilated remains of the giant Ymir. We also see how the world ends at Ragnarok, largely at the hands of Loki and his sons Fenrir and Jormungandr. A lot happens between the beginning and the end though. We see Thor's contest with the giant Udgartha loki Thor goes fishing for Jormungandr, And we also get the birth of Sleipnir, which, of course, we'll be coming back to later. But Gulviginning ends with Gulvi ostensibly winning the contest, but before he can claim his prize, the Iseir and their hall just disappear, leaving us to doubt whether anything that was said was actually true. The Iseir then sit around and discuss what they've just told Gulvi and apply all the names they've given him to the people and places around them. Again, Snorri is telling us that none of this can really be believed. The third part of the Edda, Skaldskaparmal, has a similar kind of narrative background in that it's kind of a wisdom contest, but that narrative frame is more or less forgotten by the end of Skaldskaparmal, and instead we get long lists of kennings in Haiti, as well as quotations from poetry that demonstrate the use of said kennings in Haiti. But this section is still relevant to us because in explaining the origin of a lot of these kennings, Snorri actually tells a lot of other stories. He tells us the origin of the mead of poetry, which is essentially a mead that you drink that then means that you can write poetry. The story of the golden apples that keep the Aesir young is also told here, as well as Loki's conflict with the giant Theotze, and when Loki cuts off Sif's hair and has to replace it. And then the final section of Snorra Edda is Houtetal, which isn't particularly relevant to us because it's basically just a commentary on that poem that Snorri wrote for the King of Norway that I mentioned earlier. Given all of this, you're probably wondering how genuine is the mythology described in Snorra Edda? And I'm going to again remind you that the idea of canon doesn't really mean anything here. It's best to think of Snorri's Edda as a kind of snapshot of what Norse mythology was thought to be at one particular time in one particular place. As to how much Snorri's Edda represents actual genuine belief of pagans, it's really impossible to say. But it is important to note that most scholars think that Snorri probably was drawing on oral traditions that are a lot older than Snorri's Edda. It's also one of the only sources we have, so we kind of just have to take it. That isn't to say that it's an unsatisfactory source. It's a really cool source to have. And honestly, if I could go back in time and meet one historical figure, it probably would be Snorri Sturluson. But Snorri's Edda is not our only source. Our other main key text is the Poetic Edda, sometimes also called the Elder Edda. As you can probably guess from the title, it has a lot more poetry than Sonora Edda. In fact, it records whole poems, which is something that Sonora Edda doesn't really do. Just a few notes on titles. The name Edda is never attached to this traditionally. That's a modern invention. In fact, this text only appears in one manuscript and it isn't given a title. The version I'm going to be using is the Henry Adams Bellows version, purely because it's the one available for free online, so you can go and look it up. There is also a modern translation with some more up-to-date notes by Caroline Larrington, which you can go out and buy if you want to. I would recommend that as a translation more than the Henry Adams Bellows version. So what actually is the Poetic Edda? It is essentially a collection of poems, typically described as eddic poems, and it's one of the few manuscripts that actually preserves any of the eddic poetry. Eddic poetry being one of the two main categories of poetry in Old Norse, and it generally uses a much simpler meter, a much simpler kind of language, and it usually deals with the mythological and the heroic. The poems are generally split into two groups, the mythological and the heroic, as I already mentioned. And those are categories imposed by the compiler of this manuscript. And I say compiler because no one knows who wrote these poems. No names are ever attached to them. Most people agree that the compiler did not write them all. In fact, he probably didn't compose much more than the prose interludes between some of the poems. The poems themselves are probably a lot older than the manuscript. Some of them may even have been composed by actual real pagans, but that will only ever be conjecture. The manuscript itself is only a few decades older than when Snorri was writing his Edda, And some people have even suggested that Snorri actually compiled this collection as well, since he quotes a lot of the poems that appear in it. And it definitely would make sense if Snorri did have access to a similar kind of manuscript, possibly even a predecessor to this one. But again, we are just guessing. But enough about context, what do these poems actually say? Naturally, we're going to be focusing on the mythological poems because we're talking about mythology. But there is some crossover with the heroic poems too. The first poem in the collection is Völuspá, which is essentially about Odin going and summoning up this vulva, a prophetess, a woman who can tell the future. And she lays out to him kind of an outline of the entirety of Norse mythology, it's the model with which Snorri was working when he wrote Gilverginning, probably. Then we have *Hávamál*, which kind of seems to be a compilation of poems in itself that all loosely relate to the idea of wisdom. We also get a number of stories that actually don't appear in Snorri Edda. The poem *Thrymskvíða* actually tells the story of Thor and Loki going to Juttenheimer in drag in order to get Thor's hammer back. And so the poetic Edda and Snorri's Edda are are two main sources for Norse mythology. There are a few others. For example, Volsunga Saga also mentions Odin and Loki, but only mentions stories that are already told elsewhere, and myth is definitely not the focus of that text. So, for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to be talking about these two for now. So with all that covered, let's move on to talking about our boy. You've probably been noticing that I've been referring to him as Loki this whole time, which is the correct pronunciation in Old Norse. It's actually a short O, but just for the record, same guy. And as a great starting point, Snorri actually gives us a brief little description of who Loki is and what we can expect from him. First and foremost, Loki is described as one of the Isis, so he's a god like the rest of them. But a lot of the other descriptions Snorri gives us aren't as positive. He's described as the Isis Calumniator, which basically means he's a really good liar. He's also the originator of deceits and the disgrace of all gods and men. So as much as Loki is one of the gods, it's unclear why exactly they let him hang out with them. He's also evil in character and very capricious in nature, so you can't really rely on this guy. Beyond that, he apparently has to a greater degree than others the kind of learning that is called cunning and tricks for every purpose. So Loki is characterized as being bad-natured, unreliable. He's certainly smart, but the words cunning and tricks kind of imply that it's not a good kind of smart. Another fun detail that Snorri gives us is that Loki is apparently pleasing and handsome in appearance, so he's kind of hot, but at what cost? There has been some suggestion that Snorri is actually drawing on ideas of the Christian devil when he's talking about Loki here, which means that his description of Loki is a lot more polarized than it might be otherwise, and especially the idea of him being appealing definitely links into medieval ideas of what the devil was. Whatever you think of that idea, Snorri does go some way to explain why exactly the Aesir keep him around. He says, he was always getting the Aesir into a complete fix and often got them out of it by trickery. So as much as Loki is really good at causing problems, he's also good at fixing them. And even though the Aesir clearly don't think much of him, they keep him around because he's just useful. And we don't just have to take Snorri's word for it either. The stories he tells often do follow that pattern. As promised, let's get back to the Sleipnir episode. So basically what happens is this guy comes along and says, hi, I can build you a really great wall. The Aesir are like, great, what do you want in return? He says, I want Freya as my wife and I want the moon and the sun. Obviously they do want a really big, nice strong wall around their city, but at the same time, they don't really want to give up their prettiest goddess and the moon and the sun. So the Aesir say, sure, build your wall. But you only have one winter to do it. If any part of it is incomplete by the first day of summer, you get absolutely nothing. Which the builder, for some reason, agrees to, as long as he can use his stallion, Svathalfari. At this point, we're told specifically that it's Loki's fault that he gets the stallion in the first place. Predictably, Svathalfari is a magical stallion and the wall goes really well. This horse can carry insane amounts of rock. The ice are like, oh shit, whose fault is this? Definitely Loki's presumably because he let the Builder use his horse, but also just because he's the guy whose fault it usually is. Snorri specifically says that he is responsible for most evil. So the Icer go and get Loki and they say, hi, if you don't deal with this problem, we're just going to kill you horribly. And predictably, Loki is like, ha ha, I'm afraid. I promise I'll deal with this, just give me a minute. And lo and behold, the Builder and Svadilfari are back at it again that evening when a mare comes running out of the woods. And Svathalfari takes one look and is like, damn, that's a lady horse. And is so consumed by lust that he breaks out of his harness and runs off after this very sexy lady horse, leaving our builder, who is apparently less good at hauling rocks about to chase after his wayward stallion. Naturally, the builder can't build without his rocks and he realizes something is kind of fishy about this whole situation. So understandably, he gets really mad, at which point the icer are like, Oh, he was a giant this whole time! That means we can just get Thor to smack him until he dies. Which they do, which entirely gets rid of the problem, but a little bit too late for Loki, really. As I'm sure is not a surprise to anyone, our very sexy lady horse was actually Loki in disguise this whole time, and Snorri tells us, Loki had such dealings with Svaldolfari that somewhat later he gave birth to a foal. It was grey and had eight legs, and this is the best horse among gods and men. We aren't told in any detail how exactly this birth happens, but I think I'm kind of glad about that. But aside from the horse copulation, this story does fit into Snorri's model of Loki's behaviour. He causes a problem by letting the giant have his horse, and then he fixes it by sleeping with the horse. And beyond that, the Aesir also get this cool horse out of the deal, so win-win all round, I guess. Skaldskaparmal also opens with a narrative that is Very Loki-centric, we get a lot of details about him, and I think it's a really important myth for understanding Loki, because it demonstrates a lot of his key features. The story opens with Loki, Odin, and a god called Hoinir out on a walk together, when an eagle sweeps in and steals most of their dinner. Loki is apparently really hungry at this point, so he takes a massive stick and smacks the bird with it. But hey, this is a magical bird, and it doesn't like to be smacked, so the stick ends up sticking to the bird and Loki, And so when the bird flies off, Loki is left dragging along the ground until it feels like his arms are going to come out of his shoulders. At this point, Loki says, hi, I'm not having a great time. Can we maybe come to some kind of agreement? And the eagle says, yeah, fine. All I want in return is Ethan and her magical apples of youth. And Loki apparently thinks this is a fair price, which may have something to do with the fact that his body is currently being dragged along the ground. So the eagle lets Loki go. And they all go back to Asgard, or Asgard. And as soon as they're back, Loki goes to Ethan and says, "Hi. While we were out, I saw this really cool tree, and I think you should go check it out. And here's an idea. I think you should take your apples with you. You know, those apples that are the source of the Ices' immortality. Just in case, you know, you want to compare, see that you really do have the best apples. You wouldn't want to be giving them second-rate apples, would you?" and Ethan replies you wouldn't lie to me would you loki of course i trust you let me just go do that and so she goes outside and is instantly swept up by an eagle funnily enough it doesn't take the other icee long to notice that ethan's gone when they start aging they assume of course this is loki's fault and while they don't exactly have any evidence for it They're not wrong, so how mad can you actually be? So they take Loki in, they torture him, threaten him with death, all of that stuff, and Loki obviously does not enjoy the experience and promises to get Ethan back. Borrowing Freya's falcon form, Loki flies back, recaptures Ethan and her apples, and turns her into a walnut. But while flying back to Ausgartha, the eagle notices Ethan is gone and chases after her. Luckily, it had occurred to them all that this might happen. So as soon as Loki flies in, they put the gates up and light a massive bonfire, setting the eagle alight. Great, problem solved, except it's not, because the eagle has a daughter. Skavi grabs her weapons, puts on her armor, and runs up to Ausgartha and says, hi, You killed my dad, the And the Aesir are like, okay, well, what do you want? And Scarly tells them that she wants, first of all, a husband and she wants to be made to laugh. The husband thing is dealt with by making her pick a husband based only on their feet, which, okay, fine. But it falls to Lockie to make Scarly laugh. And this is what he does. He takes a string, ties one end of it to the beard of a nanny goat and the other to his balls. He then essentially plays Tug of War with his own ballsack before falling into Scardi's lap and she laughs, which of course she does, I would be in tears. Again, aside from the obvious, this story does fit into Snorri's pattern of Loki's behavior. Again, we see Loki causing a problem, being threatened with physical violence, and then solving the problem. It's also a point where Loki is explicitly recorded telling a lie. And very successfully too. More than that, Loki is also seen experiencing pain and physical humiliation, which is something that definitely recurs in his character. This is actually what I'm currently writing my dissertation on, so something I'm very interested in. There is one final story that's worth telling. I'm not going to sit here and narrate every single story he occurs in to you, but this one is interesting because it turns up not only in Snorri's Edda, but also the poetic Edda, and also Volsunga saga. I actually talked about this one last week. It shows up in Loki, Agent of Asgard, and it's the story of Otter's Ransom and the early parts of Sigurd's story. The basic outline of the story is that once again, Loki, Odin, and Hoine are out on a walk when they come across a massive otter sitting in a waterfall and Loki kills the otter. In a horribly unfortunate turn of events, They end up staying with the Otter's father that night, who notices them wearing his son's pelt and demands compensation. Loki then has to go and steal Anvari's gold in order to pay the compensation, and thus it fits into the model of Loki causing a problem and then solving it. This is mainly interesting to me because the three different versions tell slightly different stories. In both the Poetic Edda and Volsunga Saga, the other Aesir, Odin and Hoinir, pretty pleased with Loki's catch. Whereas in Snorri's version, the other Aesir do not respond to this and Loki is just pretty pleased with himself. There's definitely a deeper point to be made here, but I just think it's interesting the way that Loki is portrayed as different levels of guilty in these three different versions. It's also pretty much the only time we see Loki fitting into Snorri's model outside of Snorri Edda, which, you know, make of that what you will. So what does the poetic Edda say about Loki? The answer to that is that it varies from poem to poem. You have to remember that this is a much less cohesive work than Snorred is. If we look at Thrymskvitha, for example, Loki is seen solving problems, but not causing them. In this poem, Thor's hammer has gone missing. And Thor does go to Loki for help with this, but it's not explicitly because he thinks it's Loki's fault. And Loki does help. When Thor has to go into Jotunheim in order to retrieve his hammer, in drag, he's pretending to be Freya because that's the price that was asked for the return of the hammer. And Loki volunteers to go with him. Also in drag, possibly a little bit enthusiastic about it, but you know, love that for him. And in the end, Thor kills all the giants, gets his hammer back, all is well. But I find it so interesting that if this was the only poem that survived that mentioned Loki, we would probably find him to be a fairly harmless figure, maybe a little bit effeminate, but that's it. By contrast, if we only had Veluspao, we would only know Loki as an apocalyptic figure, tied up until Ragnarok, and then destroying the world alongside his sons. Which makes me wonder whether Snorri's portrayal of him is an attempt to marry together two different traditions about Loki. To be clear, that is really only a theory, but it's something I think about. But to stick with the idea of Loki as an apocalyptic figure, obviously at some point in his storyline, he decides to stop causing problems and then fixing them and to start just making the problems. The obvious example of this is, of course, Loki's murder of Balder and his subsequent role in Ragnarok. The story goes that Balder had been having some bad dreams and being the good mother that she is, Frigg goes throughout the world and makes every object everywhere promised to do no harm to Balder. Because of this, Balder is pretty much invulnerable, and so the other I said think it'd be a really fun game to just throw things at him, because they know it can't harm him, so they just lob whatever they have to hand at him, just for fun. I guess there's only so many games of Neftafel you can play before that gets boring. But anyway, Loki sees this and is not happy that none of this is hurting Balder. And so he does the logical thing and turns himself into a woman. He then goes to Frigg and says, hey, so did you really get promises from everything that they wouldn't hurt Balder? And Frigg says, pretty much, I didn't ask the mistletoe because why would I? And then completely unsuspiciously, this woman just disappears. Meanwhile, Loki has gone to the mistletoe plant, cut a bit off and has fashioned it into a weapon, which you would think wouldn't be so hard that no one would think that anyone could do it. But Loki doesn't throw the mistletoe spear himself. Instead, he goes to Baldur's blind brother, Hother and tells him to do it, which he does. And Baldur falls dead, much to everyone's shock and horror. Then, while everyone is crying about this, Odin sends his son Hermother down to the underworld to ask Hel to release Baldur back into the living world. And Hel says, sure, you can have him back, but you have to get every single thing in the world to cry for him. Otherwise, I just don't believe that he's as loved as you claim he is. So I guess Freeg sets off on another tour of the world, going around to everything again and saying, Hi, you remember when I told you to promise not to hurt my son? Well, that whole thing didn't work. So now I need you to cry for him. And this is all going pretty well until they find in a cave a certain giantess who's given the name, Thanks. And they're like, you need to cry for Baldur. To which she says... Thanks will weep dry tears for Baldur's burial. No good got I from the old one's son, either dead or alive. Let hell hold what she has. Naturally, everyone comes to the conclusion that this giantess is actually Loki. And this is significant because it marks a departure from Snorri's model of Loki causing problems and fixing them. This time, he's caused the problem and then explicitly refuses to do anything to solve it. By the time we get to Ragnarok, There is no ambiguity about Loki's character. He's firmly on the side of the bad guys. For a start, he becomes one of the figures in Norse mythology that is bound and essentially immobilized until Ragnarok. This happens when he is bound to a rock using his son's intestines and is left there beneath a snake that is dripping venom onto his face. Among these ranks are both of Loki's sons, Fenrir and Jormungandr, as well as the inhabitants of Hell, his daughter's realm, as well as all the other big bads. During Ragnarok itself, Loki is described in both Völuspá and Edda, which also quotes Völuspá, that he will arrive leading the people of Hell, aka the dead. Obviously, this is quite the departure from the kind of love-hate relationship Loki was described as having with the Isir. But I think there are hints of it sooner than that. One of the problems Loki causes is obviously the birth of his monstrous children, who are destined to bring about Ragnarok. Loki is notably absent from the narrative in which they're all dealt with, which I guess, could be considered a precursor to his later refusal to help with the death of Balder. It's also worth mentioning at this point the poem Locker Center, which I'm not going to go into huge detail on just because I'm definitely going to do a whole episode on it at some point because there's a whole lot to say and in general, this poem is just... Wonderful. But as funny as it is, we get to see Loki being truly murderous. First of all, he kills the servant, Fimafeng, essentially out of jealousy, which is interesting in itself because why would Loki be jealous of a servant? What does that tell us about how he sees himself? But aside from that, in the middle of calling all the Aesir slutty messes who can't do their jobs properly, he just casually confesses to murdering Balder, which we are explicitly told leads to his later binding which has led some scholars to interpret this whole thing as a kind of breakup with the Aesir. This is him finally cutting ties with them, for good. It's the turning point that connects the Loki, who is a mostly harmless menace, who lives relatively peacefully among the Aesir, and the Loki, who is the ultimate destroyer of the world. And with that, I'm going to cut this episode off here before it gets insanely long. I know I've only really scratched the surface here, but it leaves us a bunch of other stuff to talk about in other episodes, and I hope you just have a little bit more of an understanding of what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about Norse mythology and the mythic Loki. There's obviously quite a few things that are also key to his character. We didn't even touch on his family, his gender and sexuality, which is a very complicated conversation and I just didn't feel like I could squeeze it all into one 40-minute episode. There's also a lot of interpretive stuff that I would have loved to talk about, like what does it mean to be a god of mischief? What does it mean to be a trickster god? And we'll definitely get onto that at some point. But I do really hope you enjoy this episode. I absolutely loved recording it and putting it together and I can't wait to talk about Norse mythology again. As always, I'd love to hear from you, love to hear what thoughts and feelings you have about this whole episode. You can contact me at Loki Podcast on Tumblr, Twitter, or Instagram, or email me at thelokipodcast at gmail.com. Please tell me how you feel. Thank you again to Lauren for the absolutely beautiful cover art. And that's about it. Thank you for sticking with me while I was being a little bit useless. And yeah, if any of you goth sluts out there have a good recommendation for black lipstick, I would love to hear from you. Bye!